in the early days of the retreat, we spoke about coming here and creating a sanctuary, a place where we could do this practice, and to help create this space for doing this work, we talked about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Taking refuge in the Buddha is really taking refuge in our own Buddha nature, our own potential to awaken. The seed within us to develop our mind and our abilities as the Buddha did. To develop and cultivate the Buddha mind. What is the Buddha mind? What is this seed? What is this potential that we all have? It's said that the Buddha, soon after his enlightenment, was walking on the road and someone, another ascetic, met him coming and when the Buddha got close to this other ascetic, um, the other said to the Buddha, Hey, what's... um, You look like a pretty special guy. (laughs) What's going on with you? Or something to that effect. And questioned the Buddha as to what his quality was that was so radiant, that was so clearly observable, and asked him if he was a saint. The Buddha said no. If he was a a heavenly being, the Buddha said no. And asked him a series of questions, and the Buddha kept answering no. And he said, well, what are you anyway? And the Buddha said, I'm awake. And that's the nature of a Buddha mind to be awake. What are the qualities of being awake? As you know here from your practice, we can go through much of our life on automatic pilot or mere survival mode getting by, get up, get through the day, get to bed, get up, get through the day, get to bed, without really being awake, without really noticing what's going on, going through the motions, doing things out of habit or ritual or uh, obsession of one sort or another, not really paying too much attention. Being awake, as the Buddha was, is above and beyond that. It's developing those qualities of mind or qualities of heart which are most human, which distinguish us from other forms of being. If you look around 
Look in your own life to your family, your friends, people that you know. What qualities do you see in them or in yourself that lead you and others to a sense of understanding, a sense of peace, of harmony, of tolerance, of love, generosity. What qualities do people have that lead you to like them? Or that lead to happiness? I say, what qualities of mind do people have? It's obviously not their body. It's not how much money one has or doesn't have, or what role they play, or what knowledge they have, what title, what success. Any of that can come or go. And some have these other qualities of mind, regardless of their outward means and appearance, that shine forth, that are really radiant. The Buddha said, the mind is the forerunner of all good states, all good things. The mind is the chief. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows just as surely as the shadow never leaves one. We can see our mind reflected in our behavior, how we move with our body, what we say with our speech, and what goes on in our mind, our mannerisms. One way to understand what we're doing here is to understand that we are developing these different qualities of mind of being awake. And we've spoken about some of these qualities previously, being one way of understanding it, being the development of the ten paramis, or the ten, ten attitudes that we have towards our life, towards all of life. And it's important to understand how they are developed, how they play a part in your life, what they actually bring you to experience, how you experience them, what quality of mind, what quality of relationship does it bring to your life. Practice is really the cultivation, the growth, and the maturing of these paramis, or these perfections of mind. Tonight I want to speak about the first in the list of paramis, a quality of mind or a quality of practice that doesn't even get mentioned in the Eightfold Path. It's so basic, so necessary, that it almost doesn't need to be mentioned, it's so obvious. And that's the development 
of generosity. It's a basic attitude, a very fundamental attitude of understanding that your life is sufficient. What you have is sufficient. And that you can share that with others. Whatever you have is sufficient for life. And you can share that. The ability to share or to recognize one's own life is requires an immediate recognition of our interconnectedness. None of us could be here today if others hadn't shared with us their life, their time, their money, their knowledge, their expertise, whatever it is that we share and get from others is comes from a spirit of generosity, of giving. It's a quality of mind of not trying to be independent, not being so closed and self-contained that you can get along without others. And it's the desire to share, or the will to share, what is needed what is valuable to others. Our conditioning as Westerners, unfortunately, does not highly value generosity. We talk about it a lot sharing what we have. But if we just look around at our own life and others, we can see that, in fact, we mostly have an attitude of striving to get what we want for our own use. Believing that that will bring us happiness. It's not easy to decondition or to even see that conditioning, let alone to decondition it or to unhook from that powerful uh, response and reaction that we have. It's very easy to, when we see conditions of need in others, to rationalize in some way that I need it more than they. They don't really need it. They've got enough. If they want it, they should go out and work for it. Whatever. It's really easy. And if you pay attention, you'll see in your own mind how many excuses or reasons we have for not sharing even what knowledge we have, for not freely giving to another what we know. We'll sell it. 
but it's really hard to give it away. Part of it comes from, in the West, many of us honestly believe that if something is free, it can't be worth very much. And the more something costs, the more valuable it is. But I would ask you to look at that um, unspoken but widely held belief and see for yourself if that's true. Generosity or developing this open handedness or open heartedness, really, is not being attached to what you have, what you are, what you know. Basic letting go of what you have. There are many reasons for for giving, for offering, for being generous. Sometimes we like to give things to people for their own good. That might be questionable. Sometimes we like to give things to get rid of something that we don't really want or don't really need. Sometimes we understand that giving to others really makes us happy. Or that relieving others' conditions of need or suffering or deprivation, whatever it is, makes them happy. But when we develop metta, compassion, or loving-kindness, we can see that whatever we offer of ourself to another leads to happiness, both for them and for ourselves. The most pervasive recognition of being a monk is that everything about your life is possible, is made possible, or comes as a result of others' generosity. Because when you become a monk, you give up everything you have, all of your possessions. You even give up your name. You give up your home, you give up your family, you give it all up. And you go to someone, a preceptor or a monastery, a monk, and you ask them to ordain you. And they give you the necessities of life. Your robes, your bowl, a place to stay, medicine if you need it, and the opportunity to go for alms in the morning and and get what food you need for the day. Everything about being a monk is from the generosity of others, including the teaching. I think some of us have an attitude of 
when we think about being a monk or a nun, I don't mean to exclude nun, when we think about being a monk or a nun in Asia, we think, I'll go there, get ordained, I'll be all alone, not dependent on anybody, just wandering around the countryside free. You may, but in fact you are totally dependent on others. You can't do a thing for yourself, so to speak. And in those countries, in Thailand, in Burma, where I was, in Malaysia, where I was, the whole cultural conditioning of people there is to support people who are monks or nuns. They have conditioning which makes it a very joyous and a very knowledgeable thing to offer, to support, and to, to, to take care of monks, nuns, monasteries, pagodas, temples. They really value people taking a period of time in their life to leave the worldly concerns and affairs and to just spend time with themselves. And they're so appreciative of anyone making that opportunity or taking that opportunity in your life that they'll support you to do it. And for the whole time that I was in Asia, from the time I got there till the time I left or till the time I came back here, everything was provided through the generosity of others. And that's quite amazing because in Burma, according to the United Nations uh, list of uh, wealthy to poor countries, Burma's about fourth from the bottom now. Fourth poorest country in the world, economically. And yet, it's estimated that the average Burman gives something like a quarter to a third of his income to support monks and nuns, temples, monasteries, meditation centers. A quarter to a third of their income. And even though they live in very poor economic conditions, and I mean really poor, and even though they live under a terribly repressive military regime, Burmese people are extremely happy. And it's really difficult to understand from coming from in the we here in the West, where we believe that political freedom and economic success are the sources of happiness, true contentment and happiness. We wouldn't give them up for anything. We'll fight to the death to maintain them, believing that they are necessary or the essential ingredient or key to happiness. That fact or that thought or that belief is belied by the experience in Burma, or the experience of Burmans. Yes, they have their unhappiness, no doubt, just as we do. But on the whole, there is a level of contentment and peace and
tremendous joy in their life. After I'd been practicing in Burma for some couple of years, the first couple of years I didn't go on alms round because I was just practicing, and alms round is kind of distracting. You go out for an hour, an hour and a half in the morning walking around the village. Well, I was in Rangoon, one section of Rangoon, and after a couple of years, um, I wanted to go on alms round. And so I asked Saidoff if I could go, and he said yes. And uh, I got in my line, or I got in the line along with the rest of the monks. And the way they line up the monks in this particular monastery is by height. Well, <laughs> most Burmans are pretty short. <laughs> so I was very near the front of the line. And we went on a route each day. There was, a, there was the same route, uh, Monday through Saturday. Sundays it was a little bit longer. And it was about a three-mile walk, and it took a little more than an hour through one of the suburbs, or along the road and into a marketplace and through the suburbs. And for the most part, there would be anywhere from 50 to 100 different people along the way, or families or households, of people that would that would be standing by the road as we come by, and they would just stand by the road with their uh, bowl of or their pot of rice and curries, and sometimes they'd set up a whole table of different things that they wanted to offer for monks. And as we came by, and there would be anywhere from twenty to a hundred monks, sometimes hundred or more, um, we would walk by and they would put a small amount of rice in each one of our bowls. And when monks go on alms round, they have to wear their robes formally, meaning both of their shoulders are covered and their neck is covered. They have to make a collar out of their robe. And we have to go barefoot. Right. And there's a number of lay boys from the temple that usually go with us to collect um, the curries and the bananas and the fruits and things that we don't put in the bowl with the rice. And whatever monks go that day, we go and we walk through the, um, through the suburb, through the village, through the, the marketplace, through the slums, through whatever it is, and eventually get back to the monastery and we drop all our food off in the kitchen. And the kitchen then takes whatever food we get and they prepare it for the noontime meal by um, maybe cooking a little extra stuff, cutting up the fruit and whatnot, and then offering to everyone in the monastery whatever the monks get for that day. If it's a good day, we have a good meal. If it's not such a good day, we have a pretty skimpy meal. But it really doesn't matter, because in the going for the alms, there's such an appreciation for whatever people offer. And when they just offer a spoonful of rice, 
it's so nice. I mean, you can see that these people, it's their daily practice to offer something every day. And there would be some, some families, every day they would be there. Rain or shine, cold or warm, muddy season or dry season. Never fail. The act of giving or the act of offering alms or offering anything to anyone, being generous in any way, is kama. It's a karmic action based on some motivation, some intention, or some desire to to do that. It doesn't happen without uh, an intention. And it is that intention, or it is that motivation, which determines the, the quality of the mind that gives. It's not so much what you give, or how much you give, it's the quality of mind behind it. What is your thought in giving? There are three phases to giving. There is the thoughts that you have, and these are commas also. Each thought is a comma, or a piece of a comma, and comma, as you know, has its resultant fruition at some point in the future. The thoughts you have prior to giving, thinking about what it is you want to give, to whom you want to give it, and the joy that you'll have, the contentment that they'll have, is all karma, even before you get to the act. And it can arouse a tremendous amount of joy and um, a powerful determination in the mind to do it. When you're actually giving, offering something to someone, for as long as it takes, a second or two, a minute, an hour, a week, each moment of giving is a karmic action destined to produce karmic fruits, bringing in its wake happiness, joy, contentment, peace of mind, connection with others. And after giving, any time that you reflect on what you have done. Again, remembering and arousing that sense of joy, that sense of um, goodness, connection with others, love, compassion. I might have told you, just after I had ordained, when monks have to go to some ceremonies, they have to wear their robes formally. And it's a very difficult maneuver to do with this big robe. And I used to have to go to a, uh, one of the Burmese monks about 20 minutes before any time I had to wear my robe and say, stand here with my arms out and say, okay, tie me up. And they would take my robe and roll it all around me and, and make it fit. And I didn't know how to do it. 
And finally I knew that I had to learn, so I went to, on one day when we were all lined up with our robes like that, I found the monk, or I looked around the crowd of 50 monks or something, and I found the monk whose robe was the neatest. And I went to him and I said, I would like you to teach me how to roll my robe like that. So he told me where he lived and I went to his, his kuti at another time. And uh, he patiently, in his broken English and my really broken Burmese, tried to teach me how to do it. Well, he took me through it three or four or five or ten times and I was pretty bad at it. And I went back for a second lesson a few days later and practiced again and eventually got to where I could manage it with a little help. And I was very appreciative of him teaching me how to do that because a lot of a monk's practice is keeping your robe together. (laughs) You know, keeping the robes at the right length, below the knee, the lower robe, the upper robe, on the shoulders. And Anybody who's been a monk or a nun knows that it's it's a major part of your practice. (laughs) So I was very appreciative that he had taught me how to do this. And I wanted to offer him something. I had been offered, in the cold season, I had been offered a blanket, similar to this one here, for wrapping up in on cold mornings. So I wanted to offer it to him. And so I went to his kuti and I, and I had my, my blanket and I offered it to him and he was really happy. And every time I would see him in the monastery after that, wearing that robe or wearing that blanket, it felt so good. It's like having done it once, I got the benefit a hundred times. And we have a just from that, we have a really powerful connection and just um, a friendship, a bond of friendship, which will always be there. Giving gifts really bonds friendships. So the intention or the motivation or the volition that we have in giving is what determines its quality or the resultant effects. If there is some attachment to whatever it is you're giving, if it's really the blanket I like most and I really would like to have it for myself, but I should give it away, and I give it, then with that attachment still being present, there really can't be giving. Or if there's some motivation to get something in return, and this sneaks in pretty, pretty easily, you know, I'll give you this $10 book, I know you'll give me that $20 book, or hope that you will. And sometimes we do that in a very believing that we're really giving with a clear or pure mind. But in fact, we may have some 
motivation or some hidden agenda. Maybe we want that person to like us. Maybe we want that person to do something for us. And we're just kind of um, greasing the wheel, so to speak. Any motivation like that or any intention like that contaminates the purity of the mind. And it's only the mind that is offering or is being generous or is giving purely to um, alleviate suffering, alleviate conditions of distress in all beings, which is pure. That giving which is so unexpectant of anything in return that just says, I'm offering this so that you'll be happy. That's it. So that you'll be free from suffering, free from some distress. Exchange. Understanding that, we can see that giving or developing generosity can only be voluntary. It can't be expected. It can't be from pressure. You can't be, it can't be mandated. It can't be an obligation. It has to come from the heart, from your own resonant heart in relation to another. It's important in giving to consider what it is that you're offering to another. Is it useful? Is it valuable? Is it a worthy gift? One really needs to consider that if the gift we're giving is inferior or is not really something that we would want or value, then it's really going to be quite difficult to feel good about giving that to another person or to develop a lot of intention, a lot of uh, energy for doing it. If the object or time, or knowledge that we're giving and offering is of a superior quality, very valuable, not necessarily financially, but of good quality or usefulness, then it will be very easy to have a lot of determination, a lot of steadiness of mind, a lot of interest and energy for giving. And in its wake, will be the joy and happiness from giving. There are in the text innumerable stories of beings or people who at some point in their lifetimes had offered a single flower or a seat or a meal or some very simple thing to a monk or a nun or a Buddha if they were so lucky. And the stories of their benefits or their the karmic fruit 
of having done that are amazing. The, the lifetimes of benefit that beings get from a pure act of giving. After I'd been in Burma the first time, for about a year and a half, I had to leave. The government wouldn't extend my visa and had to leave for a while. And I I wasn't really sick, but I really wasn't in good shape either. And when I went to Thailand and Malaysia, I had to go to a couple of doctors just to get things checked out. And some of the people in Bangkok realized that I might not be getting good, uh, wholesome food in Burma. So when I went back to Burma the second time, one supporter, or one devotee, as we call him, or one, one woman who wanted to support me as a monk, made it her practice to see that the monastery I was staying, wherever that was in Rangoon, it was one monastery for the most part, but also other monasteries for time, for periods of time, would see to it that they had a supply of Western food to offer me at each meal. And you can imagine the difficulty that this woman went through to get stuff shipped from Bangkok to Rangoon every couple of weeks, finding somebody who would take a box of food on a plane to a monastery in Rangoon. But for the second, for my second, third, and third and fourth year in Burma, each meal the monastery had some sort of Western food to be able to offer, not just to me, but all of the foreign monks that happened to be there at that time. Tremendous dedication, devotion to and support for people who practice. In the literature of the teaching of the Buddha, when the Buddha talks about dana or giving, it's usually the first thing he talks about when he begins a talk to to any group of, of disciples. He talks about dana or giving. Then he talks about the different realms of existence, the different practices of meditation, to attain to those realms. And then he talks about insight. So he talks about them in that order. And when he talks about generosity, he talks about the benefits to, that accrue to those who are generous. And he lists five. 
And the first is that when someone has within them that resonant heart that can relate to and connect with the conditions of others that that need uh, relief, conditions of distress that someone can can relieve, that they really arouse compassion and loving kindness. People who are compassionate and loving are well-liked. They have a lot of friends. And that's one of the benefits that we get from arousing these quality of mind, of connection, through love and compassion and generosity. We get friends, or we're loved by many people. Secondly, in offering to support monks, nuns, or teachers, or we get their information or their knowledge, or we get instruction in what is valuable to us in our life. Secondly, generosity or being generous benefits everyone. And because of that, no one, there, there, there really is no one who puts it down. Who, who would say, it's not good to give. So those who give and those who are known to be uh, generous and open-handed, open-hearted, are really well-known, have some degree of fame, respect, and are well-known for their generosity. And in the monastery I was staying at in Burma, there was one monk, Usadila, and he sometimes would, would be the, the meditation master for the foreigners, and so I got to meet him that way. In his kuti, where he used to stay in the monastery, he would have two or three jars of what they call jaggery. Jaggery is basically sugarcane, dried sugarcane, or pressed sugarcane. It's pure sugar. And... That's one of the things that monks and nuns and eight preceptors can have in the afternoon. And any time anyone in the monastery wanted a piece, they could go to his kuti and he'd offer it. And at times it was a steady stream of people (laughs) (laughs) to his monastery. There was a period of time for about four months, when four or five months, when I was going to see him each night teaching him English and for about an hour. Every night that I went, he offered me something. Even though it was, it was, a, you know, it was a class, it was a regular class, you know, 8.30 to 9.30 or something, every night, invariably, he would offer me something. Whether it was a drink or a pen or a notebook or something he had received that day or a set of robes or flashlight batteries, and something. He would not let me out of the building, out of his kuti, without him offering me something. He was a well-liked monk. <laughs> not only by me, but most pop- one of the most popular in the monastery. 
who are loved, those who are generous, are loved by many, receive valuable instruction, have some respect and, and name or fame, and have no fear of being in groups or being judged harshly, can have some fair level of confidence in any group of people. And think about that, how many times when we are amongst a group, maybe of familiar or unfamiliar people, how we can feel quite self-conscious or unconfident. And it's said that those who are generous and open-handed, open-hearted, have that confidence in any group or in any situation. And fifthly, for those who are interested, it's said that those who are generous will have a happy rebirth or in a plane of existence where the material needs are well met. But I think it's more important to acknowledge to ourselves that even in this lifetime, even in this very moment, being generous feels good and leads to happiness. After I'd been in Burma, about three and a half years, I guess, three and a half, four years, um, I was thinking about leaving Burma. Things, conditions were changing in Burma, conditions in my own practice were changing, my relationship with my preceptor was changing, and I was feeling like I wanted to go to Thailand. But a couple of Burmese women came to see me. One of them worked at the embassy, the American embassy, and one of them was a housewife. And they came to see me, they could speak English, and they said that they wanted me to meet their teacher. And I'd been in Burma long enough at that point to realize that every Burmese person has their teacher, usually an elderly monk somewhere in some monastery that they have a particular connection with and they are particularly devoted to. So I wasn't really very excited about going to meet another some monastery, some monk, somewhere that somebody wanted me to meet. But they were very gentle women and they were very persistent. And they kept setting the date and showing up and expecting me to go. And one day I finally said, all right, I'll go. And they uh, had a pickup truck. Everybody drives around in pickup trucks in Burma. And so they took me to uh, out. The, to, towards the outer suburbs of uh, Rangoon. And uh, we went riding through the, the, the sprawling suburbs of the outskirts of, to the north of Rangoon. And um, over the last of the paved roads and onto the dirt roads and onto the ox cart tracks and stopped beside a railroad track where the road ended. And there was just a little path leading beyond that to, uh, uh, across these fields to a forest, a small forest grove. So we got out of the truck and they took me along this path. And when they got to the edge of the forest, there was a sign that said, 
Shweyo Mindoya, which means gold cave hermitage. And that's where the edge of the monastery started. So they took off their shoes and were walking barefoot on the dirt path. And we walked into this forest or into this little grove of trees on the outskirts. And as soon as we walked into this place, it was so quiet. It was so peaceful. It was just away from the city. Noise and the bustle of the marketplace. And it just felt like a totally different place on earth. And so we walked through the up the path a little bit and turned a corner. And you could see uh, a few wooden buildings, a little cooties, little cabins, and a big dining room and a big meditation hall, all made out of wood. And there wasn't much else there. There was a few um, monks' robes hanging on uh, clotheslines or something. And uh, I didn't see anyone around. And we walked along the path a little bit, and then they indicated that I would, should take a left and we'd go up a short path to this one moderately sized single-story wooden building. Nothing, nothing very extravagant, pretty unpretentious. And uh, they indicated I should just go in without knocking, as is the custom in, in, in monasteries. And so I went in, and inside was just a single room, very sparsely there's just a, a bed in one corner and a, a bookshelf and a chaise lounge and uh, not much else. And there were a few Burmese people in there talking with one monk. As soon as I walked in, I was a monk also, uh, the monk who was there got up from his uh, chair that he was sitting in and then he sat on the uh, uh, like a cushion like this or a single sitting cloth. And the other Burmese people that were there got up and left and so I paid my respects to him. And uh, he was very um, still monk. Very alert, but not straining or not curious or not, um, not excited like a lot of monks are when a Westerner comes to see them. And these women had told me about him. They'd said that he'd been a monk there at that monastery for about 30 or 35 years or something. Quite a long time, 30, 35, 40 years. And that in his early years as a monk, he'd been a really very good meditation yogi. And his teacher had made him one of the the, the primary teachers or the main teacher at his meditation center. But this monk did not like um, the big meditation center, a lot of people, and, and the popularity that came with being a success. So he had asked his teacher to let him go. He didn't want to stay there and teach in this big meditation center. And his teacher had said no, like they sometimes do and said, no, it would be better if you stayed and taught here. And so he stayed, and he taught for a few more years, and then he asked his teacher once again, saying, you know, I really would rather not 
stay here, I'd rather go on my own to the forest and practice. And his teacher said, no, it would be better if you stayed here and kept teaching. And so we stayed for a few more years. And once again, after some more years of teaching, he went to his teacher and said, you know, I really, something to the effect that I really would like to leave and, and to go practice some more in the forest. And his teacher said, okay. So he went to what was then the, the, the city limits of Rangoon into the forest and just sat down in the forest, basically, and called it a monastery and started practicing. And he was well known as being a teacher, and it happened that people would come to see him even there. And because they so appreciated his dedication and his sincerity, they would come to practice with him in the night. And during the daytime, they would go to work. And in time, they built him a kuti to live in. In time, they built him a, a meditation hall where they could sit. And the whole of Rangoon suburb kind of went to where he was and built up all around him. And he had just a small plot of land and he wouldn't allow anything to be done there. He wouldn't allow the trees to be cut or improvements to be made or you know, cement walkways to be put in or electricity or phone. He wouldn't allow any of that. He just wanted to practice. And if somebody wanted to practice with him, fine, they could come and sit. And he would talk for about 30 minutes each evening. And that was it. And a whole suburb has grown up around him. And he's continued to do that for 30 years. So they had told me this before I got there. So I was pretty in awe. And when I spoke with them, I told them what I'd been doing in Burma and what I was planning to do. And we talked briefly. And as I was leaving, I thought, gee, it'd be nice to practice here in this monastery for a while. So I made arrangements with the government and the place that I was staying to come back. And a couple days later, I came back and he gave me his walking room to stay in. And a walking room is a, a building about six feet wide and about 40 or 50 feet long. And just it's just a place to walk. And there's some windows at the ends and along the side. And at one end of the uh, walking shed was a bed. And so I went in there for two weeks. And it was beautiful. You just do your walking, and when you get tired, you sleep, and you sit, and you know you only sleep four hours, and or whatever. And I just stayed there, and I asked him. I said, "Well, what time is alms round in the morning?" And he said, "Well, you shouldn't go on alms round. You should just stay and practice." So I said, "All right, fine." And when the other monks came back from alms round, I would eat with them whatever they brought back. So this went on for about ten. 10 days. And when I had a few more days left, three or four more days, he said to me one day, he said, well, if you'd like to go on alms round in the morning, you can line up with the rest of the monks. So I said, oh, good, I might do that. So we went out, I went out at, da, at dawn, just when it's just getting light, and lined up with the rest of the monks. 
and we went on alms round. And we went through, this was maybe for an hour and a half or two hours, quite a long walk through the suburbs. And um, that whole area of, of Rangoon had built up to become a cloth weaving district where each family or each household of people would make, make thread or make yarn dye it, and then there, every so often there would be a big shed where they would have these weaving machines with all done hand weaving. You know, young Burmese girls would be weaving this cloth by hand. And so when I would go on alms round, I would see all this, because I was very curious. And I was looking around. <laughs> For the most part, monks had to walk, not paying much attention to what's going on around them. But I was very curious and noticed what's going on. My last night at this, staying with this Sayadaw, was a really noisy night. The village was having some sort of festival. And in Burma, when they have a festival, they set up these huge loudspeakers and they, they recite uh, Jataka tales. They have this way of singing Jataka tales. Jataka tales being the rebirth stories of the Bodhisattva. So they sing these Jataka tales all night, interspersed with Dhamma talks. Some monk would be giving a Dhamma talk, and then they'd have another hour of Jataka tales and another Dhamma talk all night. So it didn't get much sleep. And in the morning, I went out to line up for alms round. And there was about 10 monks and four or five junior junior monks or novices, young boys. And the elder Sayadaw was at the head of the line. And we started out the monastery. And when we got near the edge of the monastery, the forest, where we were going to step out into the light, out into the, the, the roadway, um, the Sayadaw stepped aside and he motioned all the other monks to go by. And when I came by in the line, he pulled me aside. He said, step over here. And all the other monks went, and we didn't. And so he said, okay, now follow me. And so he turned around and he went back into the monastery, and I was following him. And as I turned around to follow him, I looked at the other monks where they had gone, and I could see that there was hundreds of people lined up outside the monastery waiting to offer food. And I thought, what is going on? There's, there's just a solid line of people along the road. And the Sayadaw didn't go. He went back into the monastery and we took the back way out of the monastery. And we were just walking along for a few minutes, five or ten minutes, on this back road and there wasn't anybody around. It was as if we'd just walked out of the jungle somewhere. And it was a dusty road. There was a few people going by on bicycles and I just kind of dropped into walking in the forest in a, on a dirt road with ox cats around, and it was nice. And after a while, we came to an intersection, took a left, and walked a short ways, and we came into a marketplace. And because this, wasn't, this was not a regular route that monks went on for 
alms, there weren't people waiting to offer food for us. But as soon as someone saw that there were some monks coming, what they do is some young boy will say, Ponji Labi, Ponji Labi, meaning monks are coming. Ponji is monks, Labi is coming. Monks are coming, monks are coming. And immediately, people, not everyone, but most of the people in the marketplace and in the cafes and things, started getting things that they wanted to offer to us. They would get some, some, some uh, cakes and rice things and fried this and fried that and whatnot. And as soon as we got to the first place, we just stood there. And dozens of people came to put stuff in our bowls. And before we could even move, take another step, our bowls were full. And so some of the young boys around, they got some plastic bags from one of the shopkeepers, (laughs) emptied out our bowls to hold our food, and we just stood there, and more people came and filled up our bowls again. And they took that out. And this happened for a long time. And it was totally unexpected. They didn't expect us there. And after a while, all the people that wanted to offer had offered, and we kept walking on. And everywhere we went, just every, every couple of yards, or every 10 or 20 yards, or 100 yards, there would be the same thing. And pretty soon we had, there's two monks, the elder monk and myself, we had this trail of little Burmese boys behind us, carrying as many bags as they could handle, full of food. <laughs> it was so touching to see, to feel people's appreciation for that monk. He'd been in that community for 30 years, 40 years. Probably everyone in that community had been to his monastery and practiced with him, heard his Dhamma talks. He'd just been there living his life, simply, unpretentiously, doing his practice and other people getting the benefit sharing his space, his knowledge, his time, and they in turn share what they have with him. It's a beautiful relationship. And I walked with him that day. He went on a route that he never usually goes on, and we walked for a couple of hours. And it was just tremendous response from people. And I really felt what it was like to be, even at the time of the Buddha, in fact, I thought the guy was the Buddha. I mean, it was just that feeling of like, this monk is really special. The love and the appreciation people had for him and that he had for them to stay there and do it was amazing. So we went back to the monastery and I eventually left later that day. And I found out later, one of the women that had taken me there told me later that the night before, during that festival in the village, they had announced that the Sayadaw would be going on alms round the next day, going on a certain route down here. And they had announced the route that he would be taken. And because he doesn't always go on alms round, Many people, many extra hundreds of people had lined up along that route to offer him stuff. 
he having heard that, not wanting to be a recipient of lavish anything, just not not catering to that type of um, extravagance, went a different way and got the same thing. There's a lesson there. Well, that's enough. Maybe you understand a little more about generosity. So, let's just sit and share this space with each other for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.